I just want to start by uh, telling a bit of a story about, uh, you know, a few years into my teaching career, a few years into my teaching career, um, three, three of us teachers were brought together. We were called up to the board office, and it was kind of a stressful moment, but they called us up to the board office, and they said, listen, we have a pilot project we'd like you to be involved in. And of course, pilot project is how you say experiment when you don't want to admit your kids are being experimented on. So they called it a pilot project and they said, here's what, here's what we think. We think you three are the best teachers we have in the board. And so we looked at each other and we were pretty excited about that. And they said, and here's what we want to do. We have identified 90 high IQ gifted students who are just underachieving. They're not doing well. And so we want to give you those 90 students. We'll give 30 to each of you, and you're going to go back to your home school, and you're going to have this class of, of, of just kind of underachieving, high IQ students. And we just want you to just, uh, just teach the way you think it's best to go. Just kind of let the kids loose, let them learn at their own pace, and just, just really have an opportunity to kind of uh, to go after it, if you will. And so uh, we did that for an entire year. We worked with those kids, and it was, uh, it was exciting uh, when we got called back um, up to the board office at the end of the year for them to share the information, to share the data with us. They told us this. They said that every single student in the pilot program had achieved between 20 and 30% higher than they had the year before. And so uh, the three of us were uh, very excited. A few high fives were exchanged. And, uh, and uh, they said, but although we do have a bit of a confession to make, and they said these actually were not... Um, uh, high IQ students, they were just regular underachieving students. We just selected them at random and wanted to see what that higher expectation would do on them. And those were the results. And uh, so we were like, that's a pretty cool thing. And uh, then they said, we have another confession to make. Uh, you also are not three of our best teachers. You were also selected randomly from a list of underachieving teachers. And so we were a little less excited by that. But uh, but uh, I, I'm, of course, I'm kidding about my involvement in it, but that is actually a pilot project they did in San Francisco about 20 years ago. And what they learned is that um, when you expect more, people's motivation changes. When people are more, motiv more motivated, they tend to do better because that, that's what motivation is all about. And so what they learned was simply this, that uh, your level of motivation really dictated the results you got. And I think that's true, not just in that experiment, but just kind of in, in life in general. And, and I would suggest this to you, that as Jesus followers, we need to think about what our motivation is. And our motivation should be seen through this, through this filter, through this, uh, this thinking that simply says, everything I do is, is looked at through the simple fact of what Jesus has done for me. And that should be our motivation. So how do we live our lives? How do we love others? How do we forgive others? How do we serve others? Is all seen through this simple idea, well, what has Jesus done for me? And that's where we get this expression, the golden rule. You know this, right? The golden rule. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. No, that's not it. Hang on. The golden rule. Here it is. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's what we often call the golden rule. And, and people often ask, is that even in the Bible? And it is, although the name, the golden rule, doesn't come from the Bible. That's been added afterwards. But it's something that Jesus taught about in Mark 7 and Luke 6 and something we call the Sermon on the Mount. And he talked about this idea of, of doing unto others. But what a lot of people don't realize is he was actually kind of referring back to the Old Testament Jewish law. And that's what the law was really kind of focused on, this idea of, of doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. And Jesus actually continues in that, in that talk, and he says, listen, he says, that really is a summary of all the Old Testament law. 
do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so that's led to kind of a new expression, a New Testament expression perhaps, where we look at the Jesus teachings throughout the New Testament, and, and many people have called it the platinum rule. Just that little bit higher up, if you will, than the golden rule. And the platinum rule simply says, do unto others as God has done for you. So when thinking about how to treat others, when thinking about how you want to interact with other people, think about what God's done for you and act, act accordingly. And uh, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of the, the understanding of that uh, platinum rule. And it says, as believers, you know, we base our behavior on what Christ has done for us in the past. But I also want you to realize that when Jesus walked this planet as a man 2,000 years ago, he was acting in a way that would affect our futures. And so the miracles he performed in particular, it says that they were very much there to point to him as the coming Messiah. So if you ever wondered why would Jesus walk around doing the miracle, you know, a miracle here, a miracle there, he does this, he doesn't do that, and just wonder why, uh, we're told actually that it has a lot to do with about uh, allowing people to believe he was who he says he was. And, and John kind of refers to that. John uh, chapter 20, verse 30 says this. It says, Jesus, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. And that's, that's interesting to notice. In, in the entire book of John, John only records seven miracles that Jesus performed. Only seven. But he goes on to say, there was lots of other ones that are just, I just haven't written down. And in verse 31, it says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John talks about the reason he wrote about those miracles was not for his own uh, edification as he wrote that uh, many years ago. He says it's for ours, for ours when we read it today. And we also know Jesus said the same thing in chapter 5 of the book of John. Jesus talks about how he was empowered to do great things, and he says even greater things than he'd already done. And he says, so that people would be astonished. Or in the NIV, it says, so that people would be amazed. And they would really understand that Jesus was who he says he was. And so I just want to take a look at one of those astonishing or amazing miracles today. And it's found in the book of John, chapter 5. And it's what we often call the healing at the pool. And so we'll pick it up right at the beginning of John, and we're going to go through the entire chapter. So you're going to have some homework this week, this week, when you're going to have to catch up on some of this reading. But we're going to start with the first 10 verses that tell the story, and then we're going to follow that up with, with really, the best way I can describe it is an argument that Jesus gets in with some of the religious leaders of the day, and it gets kind of heated, and we're, we're going to go through that as well. But John chapter 5 simply begins this way in verse 1. It says, Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city near the sheep gate was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. And so just to explain what that is, archaeologists have actually found the remains of the, the uh, pool of Bethesda. You can see some pictures that are going to pop up here in a second. And just to look at those pictures, the first two show kind of what it looks like today. And the third one is a bit of an artist's rendering, if you will. It's actually from a, a scale model that someone built of the entire uh, city of Jerusalem, what they knew about it, at least uh, back in the day. They've kind of done, created this uh, scale model. And so you can see it here. And basically, it's actually, it's two pools. It's two pools that are connected together. And they're, they, they didn't realize this too much uh, until they really discovered the ruins, but they're about 20 feet deep. These are not wading pools. These are deep pools of water. And the two of them combined cover roughly the size of a football field. 
It's a huge, huge um, building, basically. And they had these covered porches all the way around the edges that were to protect people from the sun. This is, this is Israel. This is the Middle East, and it gets hot, and it gets sunny. And so they built these porches around them. But what was interesting about this is this, 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 this tradition, this, this belief that people had that every once in a while, the waters in these pools would just kind of become disturbed. They would bubble up. They would, uh, they would kind of uh, change. And tradition held, the religion of the time held, that what was happening was an angel was actually stirring up the waters. And that if you were the first one in those waters after the angel had disturbed it, then you would be healed from whatever affliction you had. And of course, it was much more likely a a natural spring that was feeding these pools of water. But that's what the religion of the day, that's what the tradition of the day um, dictated. And and we can also uh, learn that it was very widely accepted. If you look at at, um, verse 3, it says, crowds of sick people, not a few, not a couple, crowds of sick people, the blamed, the lined, or the paralyzed, lay on those porches. And one of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. So just, just to paint that picture, 38 years. I want you to think about how long that is. That's 456 months. That's 1,976 weeks. That's 13,832 days. And if you want it in hours, well, buy a calculator because I'm done. But that's a long time. I mean, it's the worst version of Groundhog's Day ever. Day after day, the same thing lying there, hoping for an opportunity to be the first one in the pool so that they could be healed. And you may ask, like, why would they bother? Why would you show up for 38 years? Why would you keep doing that? And the answer was quite simple. That's what their tradition, that's what their religion said to do. And what other options would they have had? And so they would, it wasn't just this one man, but this one man is the one we're going to talk about. And in verse 6, it says this, when Jesus saw him, He knew who he was, and he knew he had been ill for a long time. So he asked him, would you like to get well? (laughs) Would you you like to get well? I don't know how this man didn't answer with a lot of sarcasm, because I think I would have. I mean, I think I would have said, would I like to get well? No, no, no. I'm just here working on my tan. I mean, would I like to get well? No, no. They actually just serve a really nice lunch buffet. I'm just waiting for dinner. I mean, would I like to get well? No, to be honest, I'm just here to meet girls. I mean, it's such, a, it's such a hard to imagine question. Would you like to get well? But in the next verse, we find out the, the man gives a very straightforward answer. He says, I can't, sir. And the sir is interesting there because this tells us that he didn't realize that Jesus was Jesus. He didn't realize that Jesus was a rabbi or a holy man because he would have called him Lord. And that's not a confession of faith that he believed Jesus was God's own son, but the word Lord was used as a title. But he just said, sir, I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. I mean, it's it's such a sad story, but I'll be honest with you, I think it's also kind of funny. I mean, can you imagine this? Just just imagine this for a second. There's, There's crowds of sick and paralyzed and blind, people waiting there day after day, for their opportunity to just cannonball into this pool trying to be first. And we don't know how often this bubbled up, if it was every couple hours, every couple days, or a couple times a year. We have no idea. But people would wait for, for such long periods of time for the chance to just jump in, just to jump into this pool of water. And, it, and there's a whole crowd there. And we, and we understand from this man's account 
that in some cases people might have brought friends or families. They weren't able to get in the pool themselves, so they would have somebody who might come and literally pick them up and throw them into this pool every time the water's bubbled up. I've, I know I shouldn't smile, but I just, I, I just imagine this. It just must have been chaos. And remember, it's 20 feet deep. And I'm willing to guess that pretty much nobody there was a strong swimmer. First of all, not very many people knew how to swim back then unless they were fishermen or lived on the water. This is a desert. And so people being, who, who can't walk are being thrown in this water every so often just to be fished back out to find out, I guess we weren't first. I guess we weren't quick enough today. And again, you might ask yourself, why would they keep doing this? And I would suggest their options were very limited. They wanted to be healed and this was the opportunity they had. Well, in verse 8, the story continues. John continues, and he writes this. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. And instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking away. Hooray! I mean, you know, I'll see you next week. That's, let's just leave it there. What a, what a great ending to the story that uh, for, for whatever reason, Jesus has decided to heal this man. We don't know why necessarily, but we know it wasn't to glorify himself because within minutes he'd slipped away. The guy didn't even know who to thank because Jesus had, had disappeared into the crowd. And so it sounds like a great story, but, and, and that's the good news. The good news is this guy is walking home for the first time in 38 years. That's the good news, but unfortunately there's some bad news. And the bad news is simply this that uh, I only shared with you the first half of verse 9. Let's read, let's read the whole thing this time. Sorry, verse 8. No, it is verse 9. Instantly, it says, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But, but, the miracle happened on the Sabbath. And then verse 11, uh, verse 10 says, so the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry your sleeping mat. I mean, I must, you must be thinking, what is this guy thinking right now? You must be thinking, like, seriously, are you going to say that to me right now? After 38 years, you're not going to celebrate that I'm walking. Instead, you're going to criticize me because I'm carrying my sleeping uh, mat? I mean, he knows this. He, he, he would know the, the, ten, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, 20. He would know that number four says, keep the Sabbath holy, and it says to do no work. And the concept is simply this, God rested on the seventh day of creation, so why don't you take the seventh day to, 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 to rest and thank him for what he'd done for you? But the religious people of this time, they kind of went nuts with it, and they actually had created 39 different categories of what work was and what work wasn't. And one of these categories was all about what you could carry. And so there was a list of things you could carry and a list of things that you couldn't. And there was very few things on the yes, you can list. You could carry your clothes across the room before you put them on. You could carry your food from your plate to your mouth. But there wasn't a lot of other things that you could do. You weren't meant to do any work. I don't know if you ever heard of a Shabbat elevator. This continues to this day. Uh, with Orthodox Jews, that many of them believe you can't push the button on the elevator that's doing work. It's actually tied into this idea of creating a spark. And so in some apartment buildings in, in largely Jewish areas, especially in New York, they have these elevators that on six days of the week, they run like any other elevator. You come to the elevator, you push the button, the elevator comes to you, you get on, you take it downstairs. But on one day a week, on the Sabbath, these elevators will stop at every single floor all the way up, 
and then all the way down. So although you might be waiting a little bit longer, you won't have to push that button. You just have to ride it all the way up and all the way down. I mean, that's the level of detail it went to. But I can only imagine this man's response. I can only imagine, actually, I should say, my response if I was in this man's situation. I think I would have been angry. I think I would have said, 38 years. That's 456 months, guys. That's 1,976 weeks. That's 13,832 days. And if you guys want that in hours, then go get yourself an abacus because I'm not going to do it. I think I would have been angry. Whose voice should I listen to? The healer or the haters? My religion, my tradition did nothing for me for 38 years. But this man, whoever he was, he walked up to me and healed me. And so, yeah, I'm carrying my sleeping mat because I'm following the instructions for this great man. And so immediately the religious leaders wanted to know, well, who gave you authorization? Who was this man who healed you and gave you the instructions to carry this mat? And the man just answered as honestly as he could. He just said it was just some guy. I don't know who it was. But soon after, and that's all the Bible tells us, soon after Jesus runs into this guy again and introductions are made. And so this man goes and he tells the religious leaders of his days, he says, listen guys, I found out who it was. It was a great man named Jesus. And I don't know this for sure, but I guarantee you one of those Pharisees, one of those religious leaders would have looked at the other ones and said, I knew it. I knew it was Jesus. He's always doing stuff like this. He is always breaking the rules, even though he claims to be a great man of God. And you know, This is where the story starts to get really uh, complicated. So if you've only been paying half attention so far, then I'm going to suggest you just kind of ride this one out because it's kind of complicated. You know, if you want to pull out your phone and play, you know, Angry Birds or uh, Candy Crush or I actually don't know a newer reference for a game that you might be playing on your phone, but that's okay. But for the rest of us, we'll continue on. And it says in verse 16, it says that we read that these religious leaders started to follow Jesus around. And they started to harass him, and the, or the word might, be, might have been used, persecute him. They started to harass him. And this all comes to a huge head when there's this massive argument between Jesus and a group of these, these religious leaders. And although I say argument, it was pretty much a monologue from Jesus. And, and it, you know, if you see Jesus as a very timid man, a very quiet, soft-spoken, kind of a pushover, then you really need to read the rest of John chapter 5. And here, I'll give you a little multiple choice question here. Let's do, let's do a quick little multiple choice question. I'm going to give you five statements. Four of these were said by Jesus in this one conversation. Just to give you a feel for kind of how, how heated this had become. So here, take a listen to these. Uh, first one, Jesus said to these great men of God, these religious leaders, he said, have you even ever heard God's voice? I don't think they would have taken that very well. How about this one, number two? He looked at them and said, your approval means nothing to me. That's pretty, that's pretty up there. How about this one? I know that you guys don't even have God's love in you. Remember who Jesus is speaking to. These are, this, this is the church at the time. These are the leaders of the church. How about this one? This one wouldn't sting me so much in modern times, but it would have really got to the heart of these guys. Well, what if he said this? You don't even believe what Moses wrote. That's some serious first century shade being thrown there. Can you imagine saying that? Or how about this one? Even the dead listen to my voice, but you guys won't. Well, it was a trick question because he said all five of those things. 
in the next 20 verses or so. And if you're asking, like, why, why do you teachers do that? Why do you teachers do trick questions? Uh, the answer is simple. We have our summers off, and I have nothing better to do with my time. And so if you, if you knew it, if you knew all five were said by Jesus in this short section of, of uh, Scripture, then you've got a pretty good feel for what's going on. And even better, uh, you get a feel for the tone of this discussion, this argument, this interaction. Um, it was pretty intense. But I want to focus just quickly, we're just going to spend a couple minutes on each, on three more shocking statements that he said during this time. Ignoring the five I just told you, there were three things that he said that were actually more shocking for them to hear. And we're just going to go through them real quick. And the first one was simply this, that Jesus was and is the Son of God. You see, uh, they were having this argument about working on the Sabbath. And Jesus said this in verse 17. It says, but Jesus replied, my father is always working, and so am I. And Jesus goes on and says, listen, you think my father stops doing good one day a week? My father is always doing good. And that's why I'm always doing good. But can I tell you, they weren't listening after the first two words. Because Jesus had said, my father. Jesus called God his father. And that was far worse in their eyes than anything he could have been carrying that day. And it says from that moment on, the Pharisees actually stopped trying to trick him, stopped trying to deceive him, and they started trying to kill him. That's how serious it was what he just said. That was the first shocking statement. But then he followed that up. A few verses later, he said this, section, uh, uh, point two says this, salvation comes from believing. And that would have been shocking for them to hear. It says this in verse 24. It says, I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. No, Judaism teaches something very different. In fact, all other religions teach something very different. Whether it's karma, whether, it, whether it's balancing the scales, whether it's a sense of justice, there is a big difference be between saying you have to behave a certain way and you have to believe in a certain person. And when we say this word believe, I, I, it's unfortunate. We don't use this word very carefully in, in our culture and in the English language, but there's a big difference between using the word believe like this do you believe in ghosts? Or do you believe in Santa Claus? Or do you believe in the Easter Bunny? There's a big difference between that and saying face-to-face -face with someone, saying, do you believe in me? Do you put your trust in me? Will you put your faith in me? And that's the one that Jesus is talking about. But Judaism is really about earning it, following the rules. If you follow the law, then you're going to be in good standing with God. Do more good than bad and make a sacrifice for the times you fall short, and you're going to be okay. But here's the thing. That's not wrong. That's exactly what the Old Testament taught. That was God's plan. But that was the Old Testament. And Jesus is ushering in the New Testament, or a new covenant. And so he says there's a new way. He says it comes from believing in me, and that's where eternal life will come from. And the third shocking statement that we'll get to here is, comes from John 5, 39, and it says this, you search the scriptures. This is, again, Jesus speaking to these religious men of the day. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. In the NIV, it says, diligently study the scriptures, and that's what these men did. They knew the, the word of God. They studied the scriptures, and yet they, they did not understand what Jesus was saying. Jesus was simply saying this, the law can't save you. 
but I can. You know, the Old Testament law had a system of sacrifice, I and mean, you read about it all throughout the Old Testament scriptures, but they simply pointed to Jesus as the fulfillment of that law. Their temporary sacrifices would one day be replaced with a permanent one, a sinless one, one made by Jesus on that cross at Calvary. Now, the reason I'm talking about this with you today is not because I mistakenly think you're all first century Jews. It's simply because I think so many of us still on some level, we still believe that it's up to us to make things right with God. And for so many of us, we still believe that if we do enough, God will accept us. And for so many of us, we still believe that there is another way for us to earn it, to do better. And we still believe that we can balance out the scales by just doing more good. And for so many of us, we still believe that there is a God, of course, but I just don't think he likes me very much. Because we constantly feel condemned because we can't, we can't match our own standard, let alone God. So our conscience condemns us, but Jesus never did. But we know this, that no matter how good we do, no matter how hard we try, it will never be enough. And if you've ever lied in bed at night wondering, what, where do I stand with God? How does God see me? How does God feel about me? Can I, can I just say this to you? A better behaved version of yourself will not change those conversations, will not bring you peace in those moments. It's not about us. It's about him. And when we, when we finally come to an understanding that, God, that Jesus forgives, when we understand that forgiveness is forgiveness, period. You know, that uh, many of us, like those Pharisees, like those religious leaders, we, we work diligently searching for a way to make things right. But we misunderstand that with Jesus came a new system, a new covenant, where we simply accept that gracious gift of his, and we are redeemed, and we are saved. And you know, no matter how hard we try to, to meet our own bar of expectations, we simply never do. And it leads us to a simple understanding, really, that we need a savior. You know, Jesus was eventually arrested and tried and convicted and crucified. And in that moment, as he hung on that cross, these same religious leaders, these same Pharisees, they showed up and they wanted to mock Jesus on that cross. They weren't satisfied with what they'd done. They wanted to mock him. And so they showed up and they faced the crowd and they, they referred up to Jesus on the cross and they yelled out, he saved others, but he could not save himself. And what they didn't realize was, that was the point. Jesus came to save others. He chose not to save himself. You know, John 3.16, you probably know that verse. If, if, if you learned it in Sunday school, if you've heard it up probably a hundred times, maybe you just know it's that sign they always put up at football games and wonder what it's all about. But I just want to share it with you. In the King James Version, the old, old English King James Version, not even the new King James, the old King James, if you will, and it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And can I just tell you this? If you're listening to the sound of my voice right now, wherever you are, whenever you are, you are one of those whosoever's. You know, it wasn't written for other people in another place, in another time. It was written for each of us. And every time we bargain, every time we plead, every time we, we, we beg or try to make a deal with God, we're, we're, we're disrespecting the sacrifice that Christ made for us. We're trying to do it on our own terms, and that's simply not 
how it's to be done. If you have declared Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, and you know that to be true, then you know this is true. Yet why do we so often revert back to it? And so you know what? If Holy Spirit has led you to a point of repentance, whether that's right now or years in the past, I still find it helpful to pray, to basically pray a sinner's prayer, if you will. Not that I need to keep doing it, but that I just want to keep reaffirming in my mind that this is not about me, it's about him. So would you join me just praying for a moment? Lord, just, uh, just acknowledge that God, God, you are, you are our God and Jesus is your son and that you sent him, you sent him to pay for our sins and he was willing to do this, willing to give up the glory he held in heaven to come to earth as a man and how can we not be thankful in that moment? Thank you, Jesus, for the sacrifice you made to pay for my sins so that I may spend eternity with you. But I, I know I need to stop trying to do things in my own power, stop trying to do things my way, and start doing things your way. To accept that you are my Lord and my Savior, and to know that although I may never be enough, you are always more than enough. Just want to thank you, Jesus. Just want to thank you for an opportunity just to, to be in your word, to be with other believers and to just pray to you that the God of the universe is listening to what we have to say. It just boggles the mind. I just pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.